The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today, we are going to be talking about the stories on the wall. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Thanks, Jason. Um, What we mean by stories on the wall here in the museum, we have 116 dog tags, happen to be all men, killed in action from the First World War to present day. And some of the stories are just uh, amazing and uh, epic, you might say. And I want to kind of share some of those stories here today. All these stories are published also on our website, and Jason will give you that website address a little later on in the show. But uh, like I said, some of the stories are just fascinating. Uh, start you off with a couple. There's a story of Archie Marvin Bowman. Archie was killed in action on November 11th, 1918. He served in World War One. Actually, uh, Archie grew up on a little farm in what was Hamburg, Missouri. And Hamburg is a town that doesn't exist anymore. Right now, the 40 acres of land that the Bowman, had, Bowman family had is occupied by Bush's wildlife area. And uh, their father died at an early age, and Archie and his brother, they farmed the land and, and supported their mother. Well, Archie was called to go off to World War One, And he uh, went off to the war and, and actually participated in the last great battle of World War One, the Meuse-Argonne offensive battle in the last, last months of the war, the last month and a half or so. And Archie was, uh, they were crossing the Meuse River where he was mortally wounded. And he was declared missing in action and later found, found dead. And um, this was on the 11th of November, he was declared dead. What's significant about the 11th of November, it was the Armistice Day. At 11 o'clock that morning, World War I ended. So Archie, mere hours away from seeing the end of World War I, but he was killed in action. Now this is somebody, the family that had very little income. They were they were poor farmers in the Weldon Spring area. And what's unique about this story is uh, eventually, you know, his mother had Archie brought home because she wanted to recognize him for his uh, 
fighting for our democracy and wanted the whole world to remember him. And she erected a six-foot stall, tall statue in a little cemetery off Howell, in Howell Cemetery off Highway 94 near Francis Howell High School. If you drive by that cemetery today, you'll look off to the side and you'll see a six-foot-tall World War I statue. Now, the funny thing about it is she probably could barely afford that statue back then, but she so wanted to remember her son that fought for democracy back then, and she wanted the whole world to remember him. So that makes it a very good story and, and a very interesting story that we have here in the museum. What a great landmark for uh, posterity there, just uh, remembering uh, our local heroes. That's something that uh, is still there today that you can go and visit. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a little family cemetery, but she's, you know he's buried there, and you can't miss the statue when you go by. I know a lot of uh, people from the county and even St. Louis go by, and they wonder what that statue is. And so, of course, we did the research here. We didn't know what it was about. But the other story we uh, we like to tell about here in the museum is Alois uh, Henry Crockwell. He was born in 1896 here in the county, and he actually served in the Navy in World War One. Now, you don't hear much about the Navy in World War One, and um, he served on the USS Ticonderoga. Ticonderoga, and um, actually, U-boats were a factor in World War One, and. Uh, you know, they they were turned they turned the Ticonderoga over to the Navy and put it on charter, and he was a sailor on board that ship, and so he was making his fourth trip to France on the twenty two September nineteen eighteen, and they fell behind the convoy because of mechanical trouble, and of course the submarine looks for the ships that fall behind or they're out on the very edges of the convoy, and about five forty five in the morning the submarine spotted them and. And uh, the the gun crews prepared for action, but the uh, submarine launched a torpedo, and it hit the ship, and hit her, set her ablaze. And then they came up and they uh, shelled the ship, and with the radio destroyed, the guns were out of commission. You know the ship was helpless in the water. Uh, the U, uh, you know, the uh, submarine submerged, and then returned to the surface, and actually. You know, after the gun was out of commission, they relentlessly pounded shells into you know into the ship. So the ship was sunk, and uh, many many of the crew died. Uh, Twenty survivors out of two hundred and fifty men aboard wow. actually survived. And what was funny back then is early on the uh, the newspapers reported this, and the headline said "Scores slain by Hun U-boat." Oh wow! And that was published in the local paper here. But, um, you know, 20 survivors out of the 250-man crew. And, uh, you know, four Missourians lost their life on the ship, and including Alice Crockwell of St. Peter's. You know, so, you know, there was another example of, um, you know, different kind of warfare that was there in World War One that you don't hear much about. But uh, his body was never recovered. So today, even today, he was never recovered. So that was that was probably uh, the Navy in its uh, neo modern infancy. Yes, very yeah. much, very so, much. So um, I'm sure I'm sure the uh, the tactics weren't as as strong uh, then as they are today, as far as maneuvering and innovating and things like that. And once you got separated from the rest of the the uh, fleet, there it became kind of you know alone, too alone. Well, convoys were very very slow. They used to actually. Uh, 
coordinate convoys based on ship speeds. And, of course, you can only go as fast as your slowest ship, right? Right. So a typical convoy, even in World War II, 16 knots was what a lot of these convoys traveled at, which is pretty slow. And you get separated from a sub and you can only do 16 knots, whereas a destroyer can do 30, 35, 38 knots. You know, you're you're pretty easy target. So back in World War One, the ships weren't armored as much. They didn't early on, and some of the you know ships weren't even armored. Um, you know, no, no guns. So you know they're at the mercy. Of course, destroyers weren't the fast ships that they were in World War Two either. So it was kind of tough going. But the German U-boats had a presence even in World War One. Another one of our favorite stories. Uh, we actually. What's kind of neat is uh, on the anniversary of the, we call it their angel day on the day that the 116 men on the wall were uh, killed in action. We post their story just to remember them because nobody's ever gone as long as someone has memories of them is what we say. And not too long back, we had uh, had uh, the uh, great niece of Wilford Rippey, Nolan Dixon, come in. And, uh, you know, every once in a while you, you you have the ability when the family comes in to really enhance the story and tell it a little bit better. And such was the case of uh, Wilford Dixon. His nickname was Rippy, and that's what everybody called him. Well, Rippy, uh, he was a paratrooper and, and actually sa- served in the 82nd Airborne, 504th Parachute Infantry Med- uh, Regiment. He was a technician, fifth class uh, I guess, which is a, a sergeant. And uh, he was wounded in action in 1944 in Italy, but came back and, and rejoined his unit in England. And, of course, then he would go into uh, on D-Day, and, and he participated in Operation Market Garden. And, you know, Operation Mar- Market Ground Garden, one of the key components of that is they had to secure some bridges so the Allies could continue the advance. 89% of the troops landed within, uh, you know, their drop zones and with the gliders and everything. And, um, you know, Wilford Dixon was uh, actually tasked with capturing one of the vital important bridges over the Moss Wall Canal, uh, the the rock bridge at Human. And if you've ever heard of the movie A Bridge Too Far, yes, that is based on the assault that Rippy Dixon actually made. He boarded a boat. And they were crossing in uh, 26 assault boats, and they were taking intense fire. And, uh, you know, 200 casualties, um, I think, you know, out of the 26 boats that started there, um, only a handful of them really made it across to the other side. It was an incredibly difficult um, task that they were given. But um, there was 48 of the men that were killed, now, what's interesting about it is the niece of Rippy actually went over there, and they just, not too long back, I think it was five years ago or so, they actually built a new bridge on the site Oh wow! where this happened. And to this day, they honor the 48 Americans that were killed at that crossing of the river there. They actually, it's, it's called the Veterans Walk, and every night there's 48 lights on this bridge, and they come on in sequence one by one by one until they light up from end to end of the bridge. And it's very, every night they have veterans come from all over the world to join into the walk and they walk at the pace as these lights light I love all that. the way across the bridge. P- 
People come from all over the world to walk that walk on a nightly basis, but they've committed since this new bridge was built, you know, to walk that bridge every night to honor the 48 Americans that were killed in in liberating the town there. So, um, and we've had a lot of wars, Jim, but I think you know, just from from the way that I see things, that World War II has a lot of remembrances, a lot of just because it was fought overseas uh, within little towns. And so you get people in, in towns that uh, want to remember what happened as they as they went through that. And I love the fact that they uh, still remember those guys. Um, have you ever seen like a video or, or anything of these of this uh, bridge light up and people walk across? Is there anything that we that people, listeners might be able to go on online and look for that? That's a great question. And I haven't Googled it or, you know, YouTube, there's probably something there because it's, it's it's a pretty big event, the um, but this was the uh, there's a book actually written about the wall crossing and it's very well documented that, that when Rippy actually got killed, pretty much uh, you know a, a mortal shot, uh, and they actually in the book called it a suicide mission. But that there's a lot of reasons they call that the greatest generation. Absolutely, you know, sometimes they knew what they were doing. The chances of coming home were slim. They didn't flinch. They did it. So it's a great, uh, great story. And that new bridge was built in 2013. So it's, it's, for, you know, it's fairly new bridge. But the ceremony continues to this day every night. So it's kind of a neat story. Absolutely. And the listeners should definitely take an opportunity to Google that and uh, see if they can see any video on that and uh, just be able to participate virtually. And then we, uh, some of the other stories we have, we have, <clears throat> surprisingly, there's roughly about 75 Missourians that were killed at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And uh, there's at least two local men from the county here. Noble, Ber- Noble Bernus Harris was on board the USS Arizona. And, uh, you know, he, he actually was a coxswain on the uh, ship. And um, when the USS Arizona was attacked and uh, his body's never been recovered, but not long back, we learned a little bit about you know him that he actually had a uh, distant cousin that was also on the USS Arizona, uh, Fireman First Class James Harris. Um, he entered the uh, service in the U.S. Navy from Missouri too, and uh, he was also killed. Uh, they, these are among the very first people that were killed at Pearl Harbor, and. Uh, but he was from the Boot Hill, and what's kind of interesting about it is, is uh, you know, the museum grows. I like to think that our stories grow uh, over time too. And we recently applied to—I don't know if people know it—but you know, the uh, if you reach out to the Park Association over on Oahu, in Hawaii, they're actually for a nonprofit museum like ours. They're actually offering us a piece of the Arizona, some of this superstructure that was removed after the attack and we're in line to receive a relic of the USS Arizona here in the museum. And what we hope to do with this is honor the local men that were killed on the Arizona on that day, December 7th. So many times, like I say, I like to say that our, our stories have legs and they grow and they, they go further um, all the time as we learn new information. When we post these Facebook posts, we ask the public if they know somebody you know, or they know something about that person to reach out to the museum and let's do a better job of honoring our veterans. Absolutely. You know, another story we got, you know, you, a lot of people have probably seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Well, Ernest John Gertz 
was uh, he was born in, in Nebraska, but he later moved to Portage to Sioux around here, and, and he had a number of brothers, and he was a corporal in the 193rd Tank Unit. And the Battle of Okinawa was the last major battle of World War II and probably the bloodiest. And, uh, you know, the uh, his unit landed there on Easter Sunday, and, you know, 180,000 troops went in there, and the Japanese were going to fight to the death. You know, there wasn't very many Japanese soldiers that ever surrendered. It just was a very small number. So he's in the tank corps there, and they were making a final assault on Kazoo Ridge. The uh, 27th Infantry was there, and and, uh, they built some bridges across there. But the tanks weren't supported with infantry, and you might say the Japanese had a heyday with the tanks. Um, Of the 30 U.S. tanks that went in there, um, you know, most of them were destroyed and many of the men, the bodies were never recovered. They were totally destroyed, and, and uh, you know they never never came home, including you know um, Ernest. He um, he's never been recovered, and uh, you know so it's um, you know the, the battle of Okinawa lasted till June, and both sides suffered enormous losses. We had a number of people um, in the county that were actually on the island. But he's still declared today missing in action. Does and, he have family members here in the county still? We don't know. You know, you, 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 we hope a lot of times that we can reach out to family members, but it's kind of a tough thing to do. You know, the sad thing about a lot of these guys, they were in their prime. They never came home. They never married most of the time. And they were a great uncle to many people. And, and that kind of part of the tree, just the family tree, just kind of, fades away from memory of a lot of these folks. It's not top of mind to them anymore. If they had a spouse and they had kids left behind, sometimes the story continues on, but not always. So it's, it's kind of different. But the, uh, another great story we hear, sometimes these stories are well-documented, and that's just a delight when we can read more about them. And, and William Edward Verling was one of them. He lived in St. Charles, and he actually attended St. Charles High School and enlisted the Navy right after graduation in 38, uh, three years before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he was last home on leave in June of 42. Well, he was serving on board the USS Argonaut. Um, it was a very old, very slow, very large submarine. And very early on, the submarines were taking a beating, the U.S. submarines, for a number of reasons. First, Torpedoes weren't effective, many duds, but they were also trying to be very aggressive with some older equipment, and the Argonaut is a good example of that. It's, it's very well documented, but th- what makes this story very interesting is, you know, they had a captain, and he was ordered to attack a, a heavily guarded convoy, a number of Japanese destroyers around it, and, uh, you know, they did fire a couple of torpedoes, and they did get a hit on a destroyer, but of course the Argonaut was immediately surrounded by a number of destroyers and they kind of ganged up on them. So they depth charged them. They, they tried to submerge and, and get away from the destroyers that way, but they were forced to submerge uh, to a surface. And there happened to be a American bomber circling overhead watching this. So it's, it's very well documented. That That's what makes the story so interesting. So they, they came up, and then the Japanese destroyers just started pumping shells into it. And finally, it just started to settle and sink. 
only the front part of the ship, you know, was was floating. You know, they tried to contact them by radio, and of course, of course, the crew, you know, they you could none of them surrendered. They all perished and went down with the ship. You know, 105 sailors and ultimately declared dead on January 10th, 1943. So uh, there was a number of St. Louis men. There was actually five, uh, six total of St. Louis men that were uh, on the ship and five others from Missouri that died. So there was a heavy Missouri contingency on board the ship. And uh, what's kind of interesting about it is, of course, when you're doing the research, you know, um, the, the, the local papers reported pretty much that rather than surrender, they fought to the death and they weren't going to give up and, uh, you know, brave, you know. But, uh, again, if you read the story of the Argonaut, it was in a situation it really shouldn't have been because it wasn't fast enough and agile enough, you know, to actually, uh, you know, fight in World War Two. You know, it was one of those clumsy submarines that um, was replaced by better ships later on. Um, and, and that's kind of interesting. There's a group out there that actually called the, the Missing 52. There's 52 submarines missing from World War II that are still yet undiscovered. Now, COVID shut them down for a while, but they're back out there in and, the and, uh, USS uh, Argonaut is one of the submarines that they're they're looking to identify and find where the final resting place is of all the submarines. And it's kind of an interesting um, project that they're doing there, but it's called the Lost 52. And, uh, of course, uh, Edward Verling and, and the 10 Missourians here, you know, they all perished on that. So, Are they looking just to identify the landmark of, of where they're at in the water and plot that, or are they looking to go down and, and investigate the actual crash site. Well, actually, for the most part, what they do is they just identify it, find it, confirm it, and then they usually lay a plaque or a wreath, you know, and, and, and their objective is just to find them all. You know, it's it's kind of, a, they actually turn it into, with a plaque, kind of a memorial to those that perish on the ships. So it's a good little website to look at. We're very proud of a local partner headquartered here in St. Peter's, Missouri. Wright Construction Services is licensed in 22 states, serving the commercial, industrial, construction industry, and general contracting and design build. What makes Wright unique and one of our favorite partners is their strong commitment of giving back. Once again, in 2022, Wright will host their Building Changes 4th Annual 22 Strong event on Saturday, September 24th, 2022. The number 22 is significant to the event because it represents the 22 veterans who lose their lives to suicide every day. The virtual 22-day challenge will take place September 3rd through 24th, 2022. The goal of each of these events is to raise awareness and funds for organizations dedicated to eliminating veteran suicide. The challenge is simple. Walk 22 miles to benefit veterans at the local and national level. In 2022, Building Change will offer their popular 22-day virtual challenge, a 22-mile in-person walk, and a 2.2-mile in-person walk. Would you like to help walk or become a sponsor? For more information about the 22 Strong program, visit www.rightconstruct.com slash giving dash back. That's www.wright c-o-n-s-t-r-u-c-t dot com slash giving dash back.
This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. So, Jim, what other stories do we have about the wall? Well, there's a there's quite a few other neat ones. And, and like I said, what what's really exciting for us is when family members come in and they can tr- contribute, you know, some information about those on the wall, and, and we love it. We actually will take a picture of a family member pointing to uh, one of the dog tags of one of their relatives. And this is, a, this is one of our favorite stories here. We had a Richard Bruce Maxson was actually a Marine, and he joined, uh, he joined the Marines before World War I, and he was actually stationed in the Philippines in uh, 1939 or so. And, uh, you know, he was over there, and at the time, he, we didn't know much about him other than that, but the, you know, the story kind of grew and grew. The, the first thing that happened, he had a great niece named Denise that came in here and said, do you want to know more about our Uncle Dickie? And that was exciting because uh, you know she came in and she said, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you more about him. He was known as Uncle Dickie. And, uh, and then a subsequent visit, she brought in a bunch of letters that he wrote home. And I kind of joke, I, I joke about this a lot, and I certainly don't mean any disrespect to the Marine Corps or Marines, you know, and uh, Dickie wrote home a lot of letters, as do a lot of guys in service, right? And, you know, of course, they go off, and they're going to be a big, tough Marine, and they write home, and they, Mommy, I miss you. I love you. <laughs> I, I miss your cooking so much. I can't wait to get home. And you know, it's a whole different side of them. Than, Absolutely. You know, that soft side. But Dickie wrote home a lot, and, and he did talk about, you know, he loved his mom and everything. And, of course, if you go on our website and you look up uh, Richard Bruce Maxson right now, you can see we've transcribed that and added to our website. What's interesting about this story is I mentioned the stories get legs sometimes, and they keep moving on. And Denise brought in more information about Uncle Dickie. And and uh, what we started to learn a little bit, she uh, – she brought this stuff in. We enhanced our display now. We got a locket that her mother used to wear, little pictures of her uh, sons in that, and we got that. And uh, Denise uh, posted something on her Facebook page. And, of course, on her family, her family noticed her post, and she has a, a niece, I believe it is, named Becky. Well, Becky picked up and shared the post. Well, Becky has an Uncle Ronnie. And Uncle Ronnie works for the department in the uh, government that goes around and searches for the remains of their soldiers that never came home. And he saw the post and he quickly told Becky and, and Denise, we got to get DNA because right now they're over in that area. They know that there was a number of American POWs 
that died there because Dickey was captured when the Corregidor fell and he was interred in a, in a prisoner of war camp and he died in here in October of 42. But it happens that they're searching for remains of American soldiers there right now. And he, Dickey is actually listed as recoverable. So there's a good chance that he will be brought home and they reach out to the family for DNA. So it's, it's kind of neat when you can actually evolve the story from a dog tag on the wall with a name to quite a bit more details about the, the veteran. And that, that was very much the case with Richard Bruce Maxson. You know, one of the things that I think about is, uh, it's, I th- you know, it could be unique to the United States. I think it is unique is that we uh, take a lot of pride and spend a lot of effort to bring our, our uh, military veterans and service members home that were lost. Um, uh, we've we've recovered many from Vietnam. We recovered them from World War II and World War I. Uh, I know that uh, we like to bring our, our people home, and I love the fact that even that so much time has passed that we put a lot of effort and uh, diligence into that. It is. It's a nobody left behind in, in the truest sense. You know, so it, it is important. Another story we got, I mentioned Pearl Harbor a little while, while ago, uh, Noble Bernice Harris. But we also had a second veteran that was at Pearl Harbor, and it was uh, Joseph Gillespie Spart. He was actually in St. Charles, living in St. Charles, and he um, was actually training as an aviator, and he was commissioned for a uh, second lieutenant, and then he went over to Pearl Harbor. He was working in St. Charles as a salesman for a while, but he actually was posted in St. Charles and then went on to serve at Pearl Harbor and was killed in action there when he was um, trying to tend to his plane or get to his plane. He was on a a nearby island, uh, Kanoe Bay, and uh, it was the first installation on the island of Oahu to be attacked by the Japanese aircraft. So he's one of the very first casualties of World War II there at Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, of course, they, they caught everybody by surprise. And, you know, we don't know much about the circumstances there. But what's kind of unique about uh, jo- Joseph Smart is that actually the airfield in St. Charles County, the St. Charles County Airport, was actually named in his honor Smart Field. And, and most of the locals around here still call it Smart Field. But, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. But um, And he was, of course, uh, cited by SyncPAC you know, because of, uh, you know, utter disregard for the danger. He tried to repel the uh, Japanese attack, you know, um, but he died on that day. And like I said, they, uh, they, from Texas, where his family was from, they also named a ship after him at one point. So another interesting story. So one of the, one of the more gruesome stories from World War II, if you've ever heard of the USS Indianapolis, uh, Francis Edmund Rose, he was born in 1919 here in St. Charles, and he was in the Marine contingency on the USS Indianapolis. And, of course, the USS Indianapolis was very famous uh, sinking. They had uh, just, del- it was a very, very fast cruiser, and they believed that it was fast enough and it was late enough in the war that it could outrun any danger of submarines and, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about it. The Japanese Navy was whittled down late in 45, uh, early, you know, mid-45. So they didn't think it was a threat, and they didn't want to call attention to the ship either. So the USS Indianapolis was carrying parts of the atomic bomb, 
you know, from Guam to Leyte when it was torpedoed. And, of course, nobody, this happened 14 minutes after midnight on June 30th, 1945, July 30th, 1945, and nobody knew it was torpedoed, and, and it, they didn't report it missing, and it went down. And there was uh, 1,195 people on board, and they estimate that 900 of them made it to the water, and it sank in 12 minutes, so it was very, very quick. Very few life life rafts were released, and most of, you know, like I said, 900 people you know, got into the water with the life vest, um, but no help was going to come for a while. They, uh, when the survivors got into the water, they discovered another underwater predator. You know, hundreds of sharks started to attack these men in the water. Oh, my goodness. And this went, you know, shark attacks began at sunrise on the very first day and continued until the uh, men were pulled out of the water five days later. You know, we don't know the details about uh, Francis Rose, whether he made it into the water or not, you know, but um, there's there's firsthand accounts of this whole thing that went on. You know, some of the survivors would say that the water was so clear you could see the shark circling. Every now and then, they'd one of them would just come up and take another sailor. So after five days and four nights, uh, you know, the rescue ships finally arrived. And out of the 1,194 men that were on the USS Indianapolis, only 317 of them survived. So there was 39 Marines in the contingency, and uh, only nine of the Marines survived. Uh, Francis Edmund Rose was one of the ones that, that was killed on that attack. So, again, you know, very interesting story, a sad one, certainly, but pretty you know, brutal. Very unique story. Absolutely. We got another story about a man named Jack Hayes. He was born in Hannibal, but he later moved to West Alton area and and lived here. He enlisted in the Army in 1940 at Jefferson Barracks there and became an infantry officer, Uh, went to Fort Benning. And, uh, you know, he was fighting in the Naples, Foggia, Anzio, Rome area. And, uh, you know, the 45th Division had a number of casualties there. But... uh, What's kind of interesting about it is is uh, he actually was awarded quite a few medals in a very short period of time when uh, his uh, advance of his platoon met heavy resistance from an entrenched German infantry. He neutralized the hostile positions with a rifle grenade, and and then he uh, you know crept up and chased the retreating Germanies, engaged them in close combat, personally inflicting casualties on them. And so he was uh, decorated for that with the Distinguished Service Cross. And then, uh, you know, it days or a couple of days passed after that action. And, and he uh, actually, um, for another action there, he was actually awarded uh, a Silver Star. So now he had a Silver Star and he had a Distinguished Service Cross. Unfortunately, he was in a situation where he was killed in action days later. So this is a guy that within a four-day period of time earned the Silver Star, Distinguished Service Cross, and a Purple Heart when he was killed in action. You know, all in the same general area where the Germans had countered attack in there. So, you know, Pretty very brave heroic. Guy. Very heroic. 
I think that the um, Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest honor that our country gives out. So, um, I'm not familiar with what the uh, Distinguished Service Cross citation is specifically for. Do you know what that citation is? It's just for courage in action okay. for the most part there, uh, distinguishing yourself. You know, the uh, third le- highest level award is the Silver Star, of course, but it's quite an honor what he received. So second only to the Congressional Medal of Honor. But um, so, he, you know, he was, he was a true hero. Absolutely. Sacrificed a lot and uh, saved a lot of his men. Um, another story we got is uh, Noah Curtis Jones. He was uh, he was born in 1925, and he would be killed in action on the island of uh, the Battle of Iwo Jima. You know, we had a few men in the museum here that were at the Battle of Iwo Jima. And, and what's kind of interesting about that battle, I I think it's just a huge number of men that had already won the Congressional Medal of Honor were killed on Iwo Jima. It was a very tough battle. And uh, we have a couple guys back in the World War II area that actually served there. The uh, 5th Marine Division was so beat up on Iwo Jima that they were held out of Okinawa and never set the refit back in um, Hawaii, but Noah Curtis Jones uh, was a corpsman, actually. And I, I don't know if many people know it, but they, um, the, uh, the Army an- anticipated a couple things. And one, they expected the casualties, casualties to be so high, they added about 50% more corpsmen, and the Army added about 50% more medic. They knew this was going to be tough. And... Uh, you know, it was it was just risky, and of course, you know, our hat goes off. We can't recognize the corpsmen and the medics enough in the museum. I think they're just heroes. I mean, men that run, men and women that run into the danger. Agreed. You know, and it's a tough, tough job. But he was killed on the fifth day in the battle. On the, you know, and uh, of course, you know, they paid a high price for that. There was. 827 corpsmen killed or wounded in the action on Iwo Jima. So uh, corpsmen received 14 Navy crosses, 108 silver stars, and 287 bronze stars, even four Medal of Honors. So they were decorated well, but it's a tough job, a lot of guts, and, and true heroes. So the more modern modern guys... Um, you know, when you get into Vietnam, one of my favorite stories in the museum is about Floyd Wayne Hartwick. He grew up here in St. Charles, Missouri, and, and he lived in New Melly. And uh, Floyd was in Vietnam. He, he graduated from Francis Howell High School here in Weldon Springs in 66. And uh, he went to Vietnam on the buddy plan. He was a Marine. And Floyd, you know, this, we we have a pretty good story on Floyd, too. He went in on the buddy plan. He went over there and, and uh, he started, you know, his tour of Vietnam in, in February 67. And in July 15th of 1967, four weeks ago, he uh, he drew point on a patrol. And unfortunately, the guy he was near, you know, stepped on a stepped on a mine and it got Floyd, too. But one of the most interesting stories about Floyd that I dearly love and I like to tell people whenever I give a tour in the museum, and, and I kind of call it about the devotion that people in the military have for each other. 
And I think it's a very difficult thing to explain to civilians. They don't quite understand devotion. And when I tell this story, I think it certainly, and it, it clearly illustrates what devotion is. The story's told Floyd was in a squad. He was the point man. And they'd go on patrol in Vietnam. And the VC were only seen if they wanted to be seen. If they had nothing else to do, a small group would, you know, start a firefight. But for the most part, they'd hide out unless they, you know, doing other stuff. And in this case, Floyd's squad, there was a lieutenant with the squad and the squad leader and, and Floyd was with him. And they go through the village and the village is all calm. And they turn right and they go up to the top of the hill and they look back down in the village and now there's a couple VC that have come out. Floyd opened up and dropped a couple VC. The lieutenant turned to the corpsman and said, would you go down and go on down there and see if we can help these guys, maybe get capture them, get some intel. So he sent the corpsman down by himself and the corpsman runs down to the side of the VC in the village when all of a sudden the corpsman starts taking fire. Floyd runs down the hill to the side of the corpsman. They check on these VC and notice they're dead. And together they start running up the hill, Floyd shooting his rifle from his hip, you know, trying to, um, you know, you know, shoot the VC. And they run up back up to the hill together. The corpsman looks at Floyd and says, why the hell did you do that? He said, I was trying to draw the fire away from you. And when you hear that, you talk about a certain kind of devotion that is not anywhere in the civilian world. They thought of their corpsmen and medics so much that they would give their life, you know, for that corpsman, for the medic, or for other people in their unit, their squad. And, and Floyd, Floyd did that. In the museum, on the website, Floyd's story, we have the story, a story, you know, this, the gentleman, the, the corpsman involved wrote the story and sent it to the museum. And again, it's a good example how a story had legs and grew and turned into just a, a much better story here in the museum. Sounds like a great experience hearing that story from the firsthand account of the guy that was right there. It is. It, and every once in a while that happens, and it's really, really neat. Another story about a Vietnam veteran we have in the case here that started off as just a dog tag on the wall is Colin Keith Hipkins. Um, they called him Hip, or they called him Keith. But he graduated. He lived in, in, in Defiance, and he went to Francis Island, graduated from there. And he served in the 1st Marine Division, the 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Battalion B Company. And uh, he actually was in Vietnam, and we got a number of artifacts from um, Hip in the museum. And one of the things that's really sweet, again, here's this big, tough Marine. you know, And, and the, we got all the letters he wrote home. And in the letters he wrote home, it was kind of like you have this, oh, shit moment. What did I get into when you go to boot? <laughs> right. And then after a while, okay, I can do this. And, and you get through it. And, you know, then you go to Vietnam and you just can't wait to get home. Well, Keith was in Vietnam. But what was funny about it in the bush, he carried a little tin box about three inches by three inches. And in this box, and we have this on display in the museum, is all the pictures of his friends in high school. And he's got their name wrote on the back, and he'd carry it just to remember home, and he'd look through that. Now, they were carrying so much gear, but he wanted to have this with them. So we have that in here. Uh, the other thing we have is a lot of letters he wrote home. So we, we get a good feel for how he experienced boot camp you know, and, and what he went through there. 
one of the most uh, interesting letters we got there on the very top is a lot of the Vietnam guys in Vietnam would have their parents, friends send them packets of Kool-Aid. The water tasted so bad that they added this Kool-Aid and it made it palatable. You know, it didn't taste great after that, but it made it drinkable, you might say. Well, the last letter that we have from his father to him was a letter that he wrote to Keith and said, son, I heard about an operation over there where a lot of Marines were killed. And I hope you weren't in that operation. Well, as it turned out, it was called Operation Swift, and Keith Hipkins was killed in that action. Mm. And the letter we have is, is stamped Return to Sender. And, and, of course, it was sent back to his father, and his father learned pretty quick, quickly that Keith was killed in that action. So it's a good example of how a story gets much, much better when we get the help of the family. His Keith's sister actually came in and shared all this information with us after we were open for a year or two, but it's one of our most prized exhibits here in the museum to be able to hear that story. Yeah. that's I love that. Does, does that uh, little box still have the pictures in it? It does. It does. We got it posted there, and you can kind of look at the pictures there of his friends, and he just wanted to feel close to his friends at home. And then one other question I have, was there Kool-Aid in that last letter? Yes, there was. What flavor was it? I think it was grape, but I'm guessing, you know, okay. grape or black cherry, I think it was one of those. You got to cover up that nasty water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we got another story, that guy in Vietnam, Robert John Wilkins, uh, you know, he was over in Vietnam and he, uh, you know, he attended St. Charles High School and, and went over to Vietnam and he was killed, you know, Operation Harvest Moon, but he got into a firefight and he was badly wounded in his leg. And he was directed to move to the helicopter landing zone. And while waiting for evacuation, he heard cries from help for help, you know, to bring up the other wounded and ignoring what he was experiencing, the pain and everything. He uh, went back a distance of about 400 meters to where the fighting was the worst to help evacuate the, the wounded out there and, and uh, trying to physically carry him back and supporting them. And, uh, of course, he was mortally wounded. At that time, um, he was awarded a uh, silver star. He was a lance corporal for conspicuous gallantry, um, you know, while facing the enemy. So, you know, it's, again, hero stories that are fairly well documented. The family shares more information about him, and uh, it's great when we can hear these stories. And, again, that they, they get better and better over time. Um, another good example of a story is Andrew Bryant Rankin. Uh, this was one of the very first exhibits we got in here, another Marine. You know, we have four Marines in one particular case that were all killed in action. But Andrew was killed on 29 April 1968. And uh, his brother John came in and gave us all the information we have on Andrew, including some of the letters that he wrote home, including the last two letters he wrote home. And, uh, you know, why this story has just touched our hearts is, you know, of course, when Andrew was killed, his mom was devastated and she was found sleeping on his grave for many, many months afterwards. And she was obviously broken up and emotionally uh, in a bad place. And John, after some time, his brother decided, I just, I need to leave this and kind of move on. Uh, John brought all this stuff in here and he brought us uh like four pictures from a photo booth you might see. And his brother was home on leave one time. 
and he made all these funny faces in this photo booth. And he said, I will give you this stuff with one caveat. He said, you will display those pictures of my goofy brother. He said, that's the goofy brother, Andrew, that I remember. But um, again, what makes this story very, very interesting, um, you know, Andrew wrote on, on April 1st, 1969, Dear Mom and Dad, here's my paycheck is for $211. I'm doing fine. I, I got your letter and, you know, heard that one of our friends got killed, um, you know, and it was uh, actually Douglas Drew Gaylord, you know, a guy that he went to school with, you know, and he said, don't worry about me getting hurt when it's my turn to get it. There's nothing I can do about it. If God wants me to go, I'll go. But, you know, up in heaven, if I go, you'll see me again one of these days. Have to go now. Just remember, I always love you and dad, you and dad and have you in my heart. I think you're the best parents anybody can have. And that was wrote on April 1st, 1969. And, of course, on uh, April 30, uh, 29th, he was killed in action. Again, what makes this story interesting is I got a call from a gentleman by not too long back, uh, Gary, and Gary was on the patrol where Andrew was killed. He was the corpsman, mm. and he was the first to get to Andrew's side. And Andrew and Gary called me up and said, would you like to know more about that day when Andrew was killed? And I said, well, yes, we'd love to know that. So he rushed to Andrew's side. He saw that he was probably mortally wounded. And there's not much you can do at that point, you know. But, of course, you know, these guys will do anything to try to save save one of their own. And, uh, you know, when you call for a medevac in Vietnam, it's 20 minutes to get a helicopter there, 20 minutes back. And, and of course, if you can reduce that time, there's a much greater chance that the, the guy will survive. And there happened to be a general flying overhead in a helicopter, personal, you know, on his own, that immediately sat down. And Andrew was given even a greater chance of surviving because this general loaned his helicopter and immediately medevaced him to a hospital in half the time it normally takes. And Gary was there at his side and uh, assisted him from the very beginning. Gary's a medic, and of course he said, if I'm going to save lives, I need to be at the point where the injuries happen. So again, selfless, right? Right. Is what they are. Andrew made it to, you know, to the hospital pretty quick, quicker than what normally it would take. But unfortunately, a few hours later, he died. So Gary reached out to us. I met with Gary a while back, and he shared the story. And, and obviously, we've enhanced Andrew's story you know, and uh, how God intervened to give Andrew the greatest chance of survival. Unfortunately, it didn't save his life, but it was some reassurance to Andrew's family from Gary. He reached out to him at one point to tell him, you know, that he had every chance. He got the best care possible, and it was just not meant to be. So, again, great addition to the story, and we're able to tell the story really well because of that. Well, Jim, We've uh, heard a lot of stories tonight, and uh, I really appreciate you walking us through that. you got one more story that you want to share with us, um, but I just wanted to stop and pause for a second and and uh, thank all of the family members that have given us these stories to put on the wall, and then we'll kind of wrap this up with one more story tonight. We'll do. That's It's great. Thank you, Jason. And, and you know, again, you know, whether you live right in the area, whether you live miles away, if you visit our website, and Jason will give us that site, you can read where we're pushing 
400 stories on the website now of preserving stories. The last story we got and the last thing I want to kind of comment is, uh, you know, the we hope we never have to add another dog tag to this wall. That That's our desire. But on November 26th, you know, at, um, at the Kabul airport, 13 Marines were killed. Well, excuse me, 11 Marines, one Army, one Navy corpsman were killed with the suicide bombing at Kabul airport, including Jared Schmidt. Uh, he lived nearby. He grew up in St. Louis and then moved over and lived in several cities in St. Charles County, but he was killed. It was his first deployment. And uh, Jared, that's all he wanted to be was a Marine. And uh, unfortunately, we lost the 13 of them that day. Why I want to mention that is we're coming up on the anniversary of the Fallen 13 on August 26, 2022. It'll be one year. Doesn't feel like it's been you know, just a year, but... You know, we're, uh, we've got a couple events planned for that. Um, you may, may recall we have uh, the, what we call, what they call the Fallen Heroes Memorial Wall coming to the museum on August 24th, and it'll be here through the morning of August 29th. What the Fallen Heroes Memorial Wall is, it contains well over 7,000 dog tags of those killed or died in the War on Terror. War on Terror started with 9-11. And each dog tag is on the wall. We'll also have on Saturday night, August the 27th, a short ceremony to honor the Fallen 13. We're actually dedicating a new memorial that was donated to us by a gentleman in, in Fredericktown, Missouri, that just wanted to reach out and uh, do something to honor the 13. So we'll be dedicating that. The wall will be here from the 24th of August to the 29th in the morning and the museum and the wall exhibit will be open 24 hours a day. So, um, it's an opportunity to come by and just honor and remember, you know, those that have been killed on the war on terror. And there's 148 Missourians that have died in the war on terror, including Jared Schmidt, the most recent one from, from Missouri. Looking forward to having that memorial here and, and um, just remembering, uh, like you said, remembering the the fallen from the war on terror, uh, very close to home, Jared Smith. You know, very close to uh, our hearts. And uh, uh, you know, I'm in Winsville every single day, and I do see uh, a lot of uh, things dedicated to him in Winsville. Uh, right where I drive to go to work, it's right there in front of uh, where I'm at, where I'm working. So, uh, a daily reminder for me, and uh, just to remember that these young guys. Uh, dedicate themselves and uh, give the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing that memorial and participating uh, in that uh, in that uh, time frame there. Jim, do you have anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners before we sign off tonight? No, we we do like to say go on our website. You can read all these stories there. Uh, some of them are amazing stories, and we just touched on a few and the details. Sometimes we have on the folks. And every day our, our stories get better and better because of people reading it and calling us and, and donating stuff. So it's, uh, it's really neat to do, and it's, uh, it's a great experience if you, if you want to read some of these stories. Some of them are amazing. And, again, if you if you got some feedback that will help us, please reach out to the museum. You know, the phone number is on the uh, website, or you can – email us that email address is there too so you know what we 
fundamentally want to do is honor our veterans that serve. And if you can enhance their story in any way, please reach out to us. Thank you, Jim. Again, that website, the long website is St. Charles County Veterans Museum.org. That's ST Charles County Veterans Museum.org. And our short name was in uh, the preview or the preamble of our podcast this morning. Our uh, in studio here while we were recording. So if you have uh, time to go look at the website, you'll be able to see the uh, stories there. Again, multiple ways to get to the website, uh, but the long website name is St. Charles County Veterans Museum.org. That's ST Charles County Veterans Museum.org. So, Jim, we're going to go ahead and sign off of the Dog Tech podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. <laughs>